Royceau and welcome to the Welsh Music Podcast. I'm James. And I'm Neil. How's it going, mate? Yeah, uh, good, thanks. Uh, really pleased with uh, today's episode. Uh, really cool guy and a brilliant producer, Greg Haver, who's uh, worked with uh, who's who of uh, Welsh acts over the years. Yeah, you probably couldn't choose a Welsh um, Welsh artist that he hasn't worked with, and he talks in depth about working with all of them. Um, obviously, the Manix is what he's probably most well-known for. Nicky Wire, obviously, on his solo album um, and the subsequent tour. Uh, Super Free Animals, Dorero, Catatonia, the list is endless. Not to mention, uh, you know, Big Noise and and Booby Trap, um, which he talks about as well in the episode. Yeah, and a really nice guy as well. Um, I had, uh, well, it was supposed to be one pint afterwards, but it turned out into about five, six hour session and uh, ended up just getting on a plane to Amsterdam the following day by the skin of my teeth for your birthday. <laughs> yeah, when I saw you, when, when I got to Amsterdam, you were a little bit worse for wear. I took a little bit of a later flight, a little bit more of a comfortable time. So, um, yeah, I'm quite glad. I didn't go out on, on the night as, uh, as as much fun as you did have. Yes, yeah, so we've been doing the lockdown sessions as well every weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We've got a great weekend lined up this week as ever. And uh, we've got Martin Joseph this evening, Friday. We've got Alpha tomorrow. And then we've got the People the Poet on Sunday. And then there's a few lined up uh, for the coming weeks as well. Yeah, make sure to uh, let us know on social media um, what albums and artists uh, you want featured next. Yeah, so we really be enjoying doing those, and and, and something else we enjoy doing is um, is getting together all of the interviews for what's going to happen for the next episode. We'll probably take a little brief hiatus from the normal sort of format of a of an interview and uh, and a favourite album, and release our twentieth anniversary documentary about the making of Mung, the Super Free Animal seminal Welsh language album. We've got some uh, some great guests lined up there. Um, probably keep it a bit of a secret until till we announce it and release it. Stay tuned. If you're a Super Free Animals fan, you're going to love this episode and you're going to love that. Um, thanks for downloading and all the support you've given us throughout um, you know, the time of the podcast. It's really exciting to be able to do things like uh, the Mung documentary. And I, I think because of the support we're getting and you know the listens and stuff, is, is we're able to go and speak to people and get them involved in the podcast. So yeah, keep sharing your feedback on social media, reviewing, rating and, and subscribing. Yoakam Rando. So Greg. Welcome. Thank you so much Hello. for joining us. It's my pleasure, totally. And and congratulations on the uh, on the podcast. I've been I've listened through all the um, the various luminaries you've had on there. Thank you. And Thank the you. last uh, you know the last last few episodes has been been great. In fact, this this morning I spent um, I I sat on up on the Black Mountains. I got up early because of the jet lag and drove up to the top of the Black Mountains. Put the Manic Millennium podcast Brilliant. on and uh, watch the sunrise it was oh, beautiful. it was a very nice combination of uh, <laughs> of, 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 of stim- stimuli and did it take you back to that night it was a yeah it was it was an amazing night i mean it just was just um i mean because i was playing in pat's band and i mean that was really stressful because it wasn't just basically it's all the musicians that played on the album pretty much because everyone had played the stadium so i think we had about a 15 piece band and then we had all the welsh actors reading poems as well like Ewan griffith matthew reese and ray keola and andrew howard and it was just so much to organize i was so stressed out but but luckily you know we had access to alcohol after it <laughs> and, and i remember spending i ended up the night on the on the floor of griff reese's house oh, wow. really really drunk about 4 a.m it was um yeah, seems it was, to be a recurring theme, it was quite a night i was sober for the gig yeah um, and like the audience but um yeah it was it was it was it was a really iconic yeah i match, think patrick yeah. said it was a bit of relief to get out of the way because there were still thirty thousand people in the state i heard pat's I, I amazing image still in my head of like because it was a really cold night 
and and I remember Pat laying into one of that more aggressive poems and seeing all the steam coming off his mouth, and it was like he was like breathing fire, and it was like I thought I'd always I've always had that image in my head of that night, Pat breathing fire and his you know swearing and doing his you know. Like it was, it was brilliant. It was, uh, it was quite a night, but yeah, it was, um, it was um, pretty messy. <laughs> Take us back to the start. What are your earliest musical memories? I started. I, mean, I started playing drums at like fifteen years old in school, and I mean, music wasn't even wasn't part of my family very much. It was, you know, dad wasn't very musical. Mum has got musical over the years. Like she sings in a choir now and everything. But all there was really growing up was a little bit of Beatles and a lot of Tom Jones. Yeah, bizarrely, because my mother is a massive Tom fan. In fact, my dad had a passing resemblance to, to Tom Jones, <laughs> which I, also, you know, which I've kind of realised in later years. So, the, so there wasn't much music. And then I went away to boarding school. I was in Christ College in Brecon, and they needed a drummer for a school play or something. And and, they, and said, "Who wants to do it?" And I just put my hand up. So I thought a drum seemed kind of a cool thing. Yeah. And um, you know, never thinking that it would end up being like you know that would be the start of a career. But uh, so I just joined school bands and all that sort of thing. In fact, so I did my first gig at 15, played some real bad drums. But weirdly, the, the bass player in that band was a, was a guy called Andrew Raymond, who for, for most of his life ran John Raymond Transport in, okay. in, um, in, in Bridgen. And, and I actually stayed in bands with Andrew for a few years. He came to Cardiff University. I was in a prog rock band here called Retreat from Moscow in the late like 78, 79, 1980. And uh, it was like a weird time to be in a prog band because <laughs> it was all, it was all post-punk. It yeah. was kind of like, we were just the outliers, you know, double neck guitars and all this crazy stuff. And, um, and we put a single out in February 1980. And bizarrely, we've just finished the album 40 <laughs> years later. Before I moved to New Zealand, we, um, we thought, oh, let's get together for a few drinks and reminisce, have a curry, you know. And I foolishly, after a cup of wine, said, um, when I'm back, we should do some recording. So, so then it t- took us six years to record the album. <laughs> About two thirds of it are songs we wrote as teenagers, which is kind of strange going back and yeah. you're seeing your, yourself through your teenage eyes, you know? And, and, the, and the rest of songs that the guys had written s- since then. And um, yeah, so we're actually going to do a gig this year at the album launch gig 40 years too late. <laughs> so I think we're thinking maybe a cappella or somewhere. It'll be somewhere in this area. Yes, so, um, yeah, yeah. You should come along definitely. and watch a lot of yeah, old fat guys kind of like uh, <laughs> sort of to sort of rumble around the stage trying to remember how to play. But so, uh, who were your first sort of um, drummers that really inspired you to pick up the sticks? Then John Barnum, really. Yeah. He's still my hero. In fact, I recently bought a drum, or a few years ago, bought a drum kit just a John Bonham with all the massive kick drums, massive toms, you know. So because this guy, I've always wanted one. Yeah. So um, well, I can now I can afford to buy a John Bonham drum kit. So <laughs> I mean, I was never really into the really technical guys it was always it was always the kind of like you know ian pace john bonham all those kind of like 70s rock guys really yeah. and uh, one um, who was died recently yeah uh, neil Peart. were you into him i was a, a big rush fan I, i'm with patrick jones on that one <laughs> it's like you know i just in fact i've on the plane coming over i watched the whole uh you know rush at 40 concert where they went back for their whole history and it was uh yeah it was kind of sad because mm. it was you know it was it was it's pretty good run a 40 year run yeah. and uh it, it kind of bridges that kind of rock and prog thing that i was so into when i was younger yeah. and i'm still it's a bit of a you know sort of um guilty pleasure really you know i <laughs> mean <laughs> um, in the late 80s you were the drummer in, in the welsh band waterfront and had a u.s top 10 hit 
We did. Yeah. They're kind of like one of the, it's a, it's a bit of a dark time for, of, of Welsh music that no one really knows much about. There was actually quite a lot of really interesting bands around that time. But the Waterfront were a bit of an anomaly because they originally a band called The Official Secrets and there was just two guys, uh, Phil Cilia and Chris Duffy. And um, there was quite a few of us playing on various sessions for them, at, often at the Music Factory in Cardiff. It was a studio that was down in, down in, the, um, in the docks. Yet then they signed a massive record deal like with um, uh, SBK Records mm. and Polydor and it was... Um, and yeah, the single, the single cry, and it was top ten in the states. And uh, we did, we did, like uh, we just we toured the states for quite, quite a while. And uh, all the promo gigs, I'd go over with them and just uh, mime at various TV shows, like <laughs> Dick Clark's American Bandstand and Casey Kasem's America's yeah. Top Ten. It was really surreal. And the first time I went to the states was to do a video shoot for one of their singles. And um, and I was, I remember, because I was actually on the dole at the time. And and I and I got a call. Can you come to LA and shoot the video shoot? And uh, and so I went there. And and whilst I was there, um, the doll people came to my house. <laughs> <laughs> and my then wife said, um, "You know, so where, where's Mr. Havers? Oh, he's in Los Angeles shooting a video." <laughs> yeah. So I had a lot of explaining to do when I got back. <laughs> but um, but they had, they had, the band took off, and it was um, yeah, I spent, we spent a lot of time on the road, and uh, yeah, it was. But it, you know, the band, it was one album, a couple of hit singles, and then it was and it was all over really. So it was a. Uh, no one really knows about that band, and it's. But it was a. I bet Dave Owens knows about. Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. Dave will know. Dave knows everything. <laughs> and um, in the late eighties, you toured the world with Corey Hart as well. I did. I was Corey's drummer. It was um, came about kind of weirdly because I was I had a really good friend of mine, Matt Butler, who I gave. I managed to get him in one of his first jobs as an engineer. But Matt, being the brilliant engineer and and, and person that he is, he within a f- three years he was like he'd, he'd worked through being house engineer at Air Studios, and he became Paul McCartney's engineer. You know, he was working in the higher echelons of the music industry and he phoned up one day and said do you want to come and do some sessions in in air studios in london so i went down and played for a few people and uh, all the air um, engineers would do a stint in montserrat when when george martin had air studios montserrat and i was working as a laborer and i remember being in on a mountain in pont de Prix digging holes and i got home one night it was in, the, in, in in january it was pretty miserable and matt phones up and said do you want to come to montserrat next week i don't think i, I could have said yes any quicker <laughs> and a week later i was in the caribbean recording an album with Corey. you know he's he'd He'd actually fired his drummer and he was needed a drummer to replace it. And, and Matt and, and the other, another engineer there had, had recommended me come over. So I literally got on a plane with my drums. And uh, and after that, it's sort of, you know, Corey offered me his tour. So we'd go over to over to Canada to rehearse, rehearse in Montreal and did like Japan and the Far East. And until then, I was playing like Poets Corner in on City Road. And, yeah. You know, I remember the previous gig I played was at the Poets Corner and the next gig I played was an arena in Canada with Corey with like massive drum risers and huge like sort of light shows and it was all very and then we played the Budokan in Tokyo and it was um, it was I really was living the dream I was in my sort of like mid-twenties and it was um, yeah it was pretty incredible really You're probably best known as, as being a producer how do you get involved in, in production moving from drumming engineering and into production? Well I think there was a lot of guys of my age who you kind of came to a crossroads in the early 80s where you had two choices, really. One was to either embrace the new technology, like you know, MIDI had just come in, you know, drum machines had become really important, you know, the you know, Human League released Dare, everyone was using Lindrums and, Sim- and Simmons SDS-5s and all that, all the electronics. So you either went down the traditional route, I'm going to be a traditional drummer, or you embrace the electronics. And a lot of the guys who embrace the electronics, like myself and Richard Burgess from Landscape and Trevor Morass, who played, used to play for Bjork, we kind of ended up with quite a bit of work, really, just studio work, you know, program drum machines using electronics but once you've done that then it's only a small leap into kind of programming bass lines and writing songs and so i think a lot of a lot of guys got into production that way you know through through the kind of like 
the sort of embracing of technology. And that was my routine. And, and I was doing a lot of session work as a drummer and they could never get rid of me. I would just sit at the back of the room <laughs> and, and I'd watch all the guys working. And I, just, I just loved that creative process of walking into a room and the, you literally, you're just putting electrons out of the air and rearranging them and you create art. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like weird voodoo magic, you know, and, I, and it still fascinates me. It's what, what keeps me going to the studio even now is just that you walk in with nothing and you come out and you've created something. It's just, uh, you know, it is magical. And um, that's, that, that, that's, that's the sole reason I got into it, really. That was coming on my uh, next question, actually, um, whether in those early days you found it a nerve wracking experience or whether you were just like a sponge just absorbing all these different influences and putting into your work. I mean, it's always nerve wracking. I still get nervous now, you know, whether I, if I'm playing, I, well, I don't do many gigs anymore, but if I do play, I get nervous if I'm in the studio and I'm playing, I get nervous. I mean, I recently did a session where I organise a lot of uh, seminars in New Zealand where I bring producers and songwriters over to work with young New Zealand musicians. It's kind of like the advantage of being around a long time is you know lots of people. And um, I brought Andrew Sheps over, who was kind of worked he's with Beyonce and Black Sabbath and Metallica. And it's like, it's the most diverse CV you've ever seen. The guy's a, a total genius. And he's also like a, a real pioneer to kind of in the box recording and everything. So I put a house band together for, for, for this artist and the whole band full of producers. But then you've got another 30 producers in the room watching. And it was like really nerve wracking. And it was like, you know, I've not been this nervous since like the 1980s. But so I think a bit of nervous is good. You know, I, I'm a real, I'm really big on organizing. And, uh, and I think nowadays we're, recording budgets are a lot smaller than they used to be and, and, and which I think is a good thing I think a lot of money used to get wasted on, on sessions it's um yeah I just I just try to go into the studio with a really clear idea and I, I learned a lot of that from James Bradfield working with James he would come in and give you real really clear guidelines of how the, the record should be and often the first day you just sit down and just listen to music and tr- and really get in, you know create a sonic image for what the song should be and uh, and I carry a lot of that stuff I learned with him through through sessions nowadays you know he was a you know he's a great producer in his own right and uh, and um, I learned a lot from him you mentioned like working with James and there's been sort of many famous artists and producer relationships over the years you know Epstein and the Beatles for for one example yeah. what do you think it is with sort of those sort of like long term relationships that producers have with artists and artists have producers is it, is it just purely trust? I mean, there's a level of familiarity. I think it's important. I think it's good for artists to change. I mean, the Manics have done that throughout their career. They have. Yeah. I mean, Dave Ringer would be the constant that, that they keep coming back to because Dave's brilliant, brilliant at what he does. And but I think that it's. I think it's good for artists to kind of move on and and, and try different production. In fact, I've worked with several artists and encouraged them to kind of like you know, go and do some stuff with someone else. You know, because it's very easy to repeat yourself. You know, and you're constantly trying to um you know change your approaches, but you some one way of doing that's just listen to a lot of music you know and um, one of the reasons I, I moved to New Zealand was to, was to have more time to do that I found I was just going from record to record to record and it was um, and I found I was repeating myself a lot so now I, I probably do half as many records as I used to do so I have a lot of time to think about it and try and you know find the right sonics and the right approach really I wasn't making a record like a holiday romance you kind of like it's really intense for a short period of time <laughs> and then you might not see the person again ever <laughs> or you might see them again in a couple of years time yeah. and you try and rekindle that you know <laughs> it's always different there's always a different dynamic but you know that's the that's the closest i can uh, analogy i can think to how making a record is because it is really intense yeah and you can have i mean james is always pretty good with me you know maybe because i was a bit older but you know i know dave used to really get get a, get a hard time from james and because james is the hardest working person i've ever worked with you know you'd it would be 4 a.m it'd be like i've got one more thing i want to do <laughs> and I, I remembered being at mono valley 
with the band and been absolutely shattered and it was about 1am and it was like everyone else got to bed he said i've got this one more idea i want to try out and that was um we ended up doing there by the grace of god until about 4am and the core of that song is what we did in that kind of three hour thing and i remember i was pretty much half asleep for the whole thing <laughs> you know all that bass line and all that stuff and it was that was my first single that i produced with the band that was it was a hit it was my first top 10 single and it was like and i so could have easy have gone to bed but it's only because <laughs> it was james and i was shit scared of him that i wasn't gonna go to bed and thank god i stayed exactly. up because you know it is uh yeah I think that's quite a key um, sort of single. Maybe the band might not recognise it as one of their big, big hits, but um, I think it's a key song in terms of going into that lifeblood, more sort of synthy, sort of electronic sound. I think it was, yeah, it was definitely that transition. I think because um, it was, you'd probably know the timeline better than me. So it would have been, I was on Forever Delayed, Greatest yeah, Hits album. Yeah, 2002, yeah. Yeah, so there was a couple of couple of new songs on there. That was one of them, and it was a single. And Daughter the River was the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, uh, and they recorded Forever Delayed that they didn't make the album, um, which um, w- which was a great song. You know, great lost single, that one. I it think was a great yeah. lost single, and because um, I ended up touring with a the band then, I I did the I did the great the greatest hits tour as a percussionist with them, which was a really bizarre way it came about because what they were doing um, the Carling Homecoming gigs. Yes, at St. St. David's, David's Hall, Hall. Yeah. and they, they did an acoustic set and then a band set and uh, Nick and James were like will you come and play on the you know on the acoustic set where I play marimbas and, and shakers and percussion and uh, and then Nick wandered up on stage and said this looks really good why didn't you come and do the tour with us <laughs> he said what are you doing for the next like, three weeks I'm like, <laughs> I guess I'm going on tour <laughs> they said well there's no time to rehearse with you so here's the list of 36 songs you've got to learn yeah no pressure yeah. and I was recording up in sign studios right up until the tour with, with Gweno actually okay and um, so I'd, I'd work the Gwena all day in the studio and then I'd go to the hotel or the be- bed and breakfast or whatever and I'd sit there with headphones on <laughs> writing crib sheets out <laughs> for what, what I had to play on all the songs. And the first time I ever played them with the band was um, the production rehearsal at the point in Dublin. And then the next night the tour started, two nights later we were in Wembley and it's like, this is just insane, you know. But I mean, percussion is one of those things if you stop, no one really gives a shit, <laughs> you know. And it was like... And you know, and I would just sit on the side of the stage and have a smoke, and you know, back in the back in the smoking days, and um, but it was amazing, you know. And I did I did almost two years with them, you know, played pyramid stage at Glastonbury two thousand and three. So that was a really weird little bonus in my early forties, kind of like going back on the road again because <laughs> I hadn't really been on the road since Corey Hart to us in the late eighties. Mm. Yeah, it was pretty amazing to um, you know, play at like um, what's now the Motor Point. Yeah two nights there and a lot of friends of mine came to the gig and not knowing I was doing it (laughs) I I remember I remember Mel from Pink Assassin uh, um, came to me after goes what the hell are you doing playing with a band (laughs) and it was like I said didn't you know that nobody really knew because it was such a it's happened so last minute and um yeah, I, I, I'm convinced a lot of it was the fact they could just, you know, when James introduced me, you could just take the piss. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll, I'll take it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I remember wandering around um, down by the river after the tour finished. Like That was the most surreal <laughs> six weeks of my life, you know. That was so bizarre. How the hell did that happen? But it was amazing. And just, we'd come on stage to um, The Speed of Love, David Bowie. Speed that, of Life, yeah. Speed Great life, instrumental, yeah. yeah. Every time I hear that song now, my dre- I get an adrenaline rush. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's panic. Yeah, it perfect was, choice it, for opening. Yeah, track and it here, was yeah. just you know, and we'd start off with with motorcycle emptiness every night, and it was just like then the first night and the crowd singing it back. Yeah. I'm like hairs standing on the back of my neck, and uh, one of my was, fir- first ever gigs that was, and um, 
remember we had to phone up back then and my mum wouldn't let me go in the pit so I had to go on the balcony because <laughs> I was only about 15, 16 yeah. <laughs> it was, I mean one of the reasons I joined bands in the first place was I thought there's so much more room on stage than there is in the audience <laughs> that looks like a nicer place to more be and watching a school band play and it was like that looks like a great place to be yeah, yeah. And, and often you're on a big stage or something and you're like yeah I'm glad I'm here there's lots more room you yeah, know yeah. <laughs> but um, your collaborations with the Manix predate that is it back to about 95 originally big noise was yes. that Everything so, must go sort of initial sessions. Yeah, it was the whole big noise thing was quite strange because I it used to be Soundspace Studios. And the man said the Holy Bible at Soundspace, and and I had a, a little writing studio because I was with the MI Music Publishing. I used to be songwriting and, and and I was getting into electronic production and stuff back then. And I had a a room in the other other building that Soundspace owned. There were two buildings in in in, in West Wharf Road. So I would kind of occasionally lend gear. I remember taking a they blew a, they blew a, a Yamaha NS10 speaker up, and I remember lent the mine, and I wandered in. It's like, and they also used to rehearse in that same building, and and I thought they were like just miserable bastards, and they thought <laughs> I was some weird guy because I lived there with my dog, <laughs> and and I had a mullet at the time, and they were like, who the hell is this guy? And it's like, and I remember thinking, oh, those guys are just so miserable. Except I'd often have a cup of tea with Richie. And he would like you come in at because little area you can make a cup of tea, and we'd sit there and have a cup of tea, and it was like. And years later, we've had the discussion. Yeah, we thought you were really, <laughs> there. I thought you were really miserable. And what happened was the the house engineer, I thought well, Alex Silver actually, who who, yes. who produced uh, you know probably Bible and and um, future. Futurology. Futurology, sorry. I'm getting a bit old and soon. <laughs> he, le- he left to sort of move down to London. And um, so I think I think there was some story about on the last day of the Holy Bible, he went home with a sort of champagne and roses for his girlfriend because he'd been away so much doing the thing. And it was like, uh, um, the, we finished the album. Like, I'm leaving you. You know, oh, there's um, something. Uh, if you ever speak to James, he will recount the story. <laughs> so he just says it much better than me. Anyway, so Alex moved to London and um, they were looking for an engineer. And I and I, I had recently got divorced and I could do with the job, I could do with the work. So, um, um, I took all the, the engineer's job there, and and then the studio owner wanted to sell. So I was thinking, oh, that'd be re- this would be a really good little studio. If we could get it, you know, we could get the, the right price. And we, I can't agree what the price was. It was still a bit too much for me to do on my own. And uh, there was a young guy working there, Kerry Collier. And I'm like, look, they've got this pizza off me the studio. Great to buy it. And he goes, well, I've got, I've got, I can pay you half the money. <laughs> I'm like, man, this, this is the sort of guy I want to be in business with. So so we went halves and we bought the studio and um, we did it up. And uh, within three years, we had two and a half million record sales from a little backstreet studio in Cardiff. Yeah. And it was, uh, and, and the first year we were open, two of the records that we that worked on at the studio, Everything Must Go and International Velvet were Brit nominated. <laughs> Which was really fortuitous because it was all compulsory purchased by Cardiff Bay. So we managed to turn the business around and make it a really valuable business within the space of a few years. But we also set up the Big Noise record label and uh, we had we had, um, we had had Durero and Pink Assassin and we did Patrick Jones's commemoration Amnesia album. All I did on Everything Must Go was kind of made some tea for the band and I played some percussion on <laughs> did, a few Did you get B-sides. credited for that or? I didn't get credited. <laughs> they really liked the studio because it was kind of out of the way and they didn't get disturbed. We had a big solid steel door in the front so no one could get in. They used to do a lot of lot of their rehearsals in, in, in Big Noise. So we'd all set up in the control room and put Sean out in the live room. And we, you know, we, so we, so we started kind of just doing all the, this is my truth rehearsals. And luckily I kind of recorded all those rehearsals and a lot of them made the special edition that was at its best yes, yep. anniversary. A lot of those just live. I just ran a dat, dats all day. So when, you know, when Nick decided he wanted to do the, the 20th anniversary, I went back for all those old recordings. We were doing this and, and I think they had some issues with a version of You Stole the Sun that was yep. recorded. 
and um, they kind of like what, the way it was sounding in the studio. So James was like, "Well, do you, can we can we record some of you? Can you can you hire some machines in? Because we just had a little sixteen track uh, tape machine. So we hired, I had some Tascam D88s or something in, and we so we so some of the initial tracking on that and a few tracks on the album were done. So that was my first kind of like um, proper Manics recordings. And but then it was I mean it was, I guess it was an eleven year thing where we you know I did that and then I produced a couple of tracks on um, on Know Your Enemy and then obviously then then some stuff on the on forever delayed and then lifeblood i did a large you know most of that record and 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 some stuff on center with the tiger so and then and, and nick and james's solo record so it was quite um it was a quite a lot and the tours so it's you know it was a really good 10 11 years of um relationship and it was uh yeah i, I mean i i kind of owe them everything really because i often joke that my gravestone will say greg brackets manix because <laughs> that's how i'm referred to on most things on the internet and I, it was a great education not just musical education but an education you know i dropped out of school to play in a band so i remember i was thinking about in the car this morning I, I, you on one of the other podcasts mentioned um you know albert Camus, and i remember saying to it who's Camus?" <laughs> and of course the ridicule <laughs> that i got and and then the education of explain to me who he was and how important he was and it was like man i you know I, I, who needs to go to university when you can spend time <laughs> with these guys you know so it was uh yeah it was um i i owe them a lot you know and then and, and it's um you know i wouldn't have a career you mentioned the big noise label and obviously that uh led to hugh stevens and baz getting involved with um or setting up booby trap yeah. we'd kind of got the infrastructure all set up with big noise you know we i mean patrick's album was a really major release for us because you know we had we had um you know, a lot of the guys from Calatoni, where James did a couple of sacks on there. We had, you know, Kian from the Super, and Griff from the Super Furries. We had Thai Porsana from Spiritualized. There was, it was just so many people involved. It was a really mad, and lots of, lots of artists were around in, in Plano Wells at the time. And, and, and um, so it was a really major undertaking, like financially and in time. And, you know, I produced that whole album and it was like, it, it took, I remember it took a lot out of me and I, you know, it was definitely not my healthiest period of my life, you know? So we had a really good knowledge of how to kind of run a label. And Hugh had, had the booby trap fanzine at the yeah. time. Because I'd met Hugh when he was a young manager. He was managing Baz's band, The Void. Oh, okay. And and Hugh was 14 and he was managing a band. <laughs> Prodigal. And, uh, and and to answer one of your other podcast questions, he is a really good magician. Oh, yeah. He's a great magician. And he was always do, he'd always come and do magic tricks. Because Hugh had, had also his own band called Picnic. And in fact, I got this, um, I got a vinyl of Picnic and it's got like um, plastic knives and forks in it. And it's like, it's, it's a picture disc. And oh, amazing. He'll tell you all about it when you, when you speak to him. But um. So I've known Hugh for a long time, and 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 Hugh. So we kind of got talking about it. It's like, well, you know, he he had the idea of doing the single club, and Hugh and Baz had, and um, it was like, well, you know, why don't we just do, all do it together? Because we've got an office, we've got the infrastructure, and we'll we'll do it. So so I thought, great. Well, if we're going to we're going to do a single every month, so let's go and find some money. So I went to see Rob Stringer at who was Manic A and on head of Sony. Now he's the head of Sony <laughs> worldwide, you know. But um, So I kind of bumbled into his office and I convinced him to give us money every month <laughs> to release a single. So they'd give us, and, and in return, we would give them, we'd keep them informed of all the artists that we were signing, give them first dibs on, you know, so they, we know, you should listen to this artist because, you know, I can't remember exactly how many records we did for the Singles Club, but it was a lot. Yeah. And there were some really good artists, you know, Brave Captain, Martin Carlson and McCluskey, and um, who I recently saw in, I saw in Auckland about three weeks ago 
two weeks ago. Uh, and in a, in a bizarre side story, so I went to the gig and it was really good to see to see to see Farkas again, and um, and they were amazing. It was like being in Dempsey's in yeah. two thousand and one again. I, I was it, and it was packed. It was really a really great gig. Two days later, I get I get a message from Andy Falkus. Um How much does it cost to ship gear from New Zealand to 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 um? back to Britain and I'm like well, why is that and he, he says well we've, we've brought the hire company's guitar back and I've left my guitar in Auckland <laughs> and I said well you're, it's, it's your lucky day because I'm flying he said, I said Wait, where, where's it going to go he said, I've got to get it back to Music Box in Cardiff so well coincidentally I'm flying back next week and I've got to go to Music Box <laughs> so I have Andy's guitar in the, oh, <laughs> with me yeah. so I've got, to, I've got to drop his guitar off and then pick up the hire company's guitar and take it back to New Zealand <laughs> But it was it was amazing to see them. They they're still a real powerhouse of a band, you know. And yeah. um, but it was a really great time, and it was still the time of phys- we were still doing physical releases. So we were still like we'd come in, and this was the idea of I don't know if you ever seen the booby trap singles. There's no yeah, the, sleeve. Yeah. Well, there's a generic sleeve for everything, but so the the artwork is basically the color of the disc. So the disc printing is kind of like you can have you can decide what color you want. Yeah. But that's it. Because you know we're gonna have a generic sleeve to save us money, and then we'd mail it. We'd mail it out every you know. We'd put up like a few hundred pounds for studio time, so we ended up producing a lot of those records because I was free essentially. Yeah, yeah. We didn't have to pay a producer, and um, and then we kind of called in favors like Richard Jackson did the the McCluskey single, and uh, yeah, so it was um it was it was an amazing time, and um, it just got to the point where I mean Hugh got the Radio One job. I was getting more. I'd picked up management by this time. I'd I'd, I'd been signed to Stephen Bird Management in London as, as a producer on the back of the manic stuff so i was starting to get more and more work and work overseas more and more and it was just and so and baz nobly kept the label going for quality he did, he did um seven sleepers den rich james yeah. which great record the uh the ninja record yeah, it was some really good stuff that he did i just but i just think it just it, it was a lot for four of us to do we let alone one person doing it you know they, they were great they were really good times and baz was kind of like the he was the guy that would be at the welsh club watching first bands on the bill el goodo that first band on a on some bill on it like you know so they're on about seven thirty at night so you know and he would go and find these really cool bands and um, you know i would stagger out later on <laughs> you know catch the headliners yeah. or whatever but um yeah so he was and and just having you know, hugh around as a kind of he's, he's such a force of nature it's, it's amazing you know and um, a great band you mentioned that were on the label at the time, um, Dorero, who were back after 20 years, album forthcoming. Yeah, I just wrote the sleeve notes for their album. Oh, right. uh-huh. Yeah, and it was really, I wrote the sleeve notes and I read them back and I felt quite tearful because it was such a brilliant time in Welsh music. And it's, um, yeah, I just really thrilled to see them back because they're just, you know, they're friends and lovely people and and, uh, and it's a really good record. But you should read the sleeve notes because they're, they're like, um, it's a little potted history of the band and, um, yeah. and, and our involvement with them. And it was, um, they adopted Welsh band a bit like McCluskey or yeah. you know yeah. or John Rosson you know yeah. adopted honorary Welsh people <laughs> honorary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we welcome everyone into the fold yeah. I wanted to uh, ask you quickly about sort of producer signature sounds what would you say your signature sound was and and have you ever bought an album purely for the producer yeah I mean I quite you know I, when I was trying to learn the art I'd often buy albums it was a lot of those Trevor Horn 80s records you know Grace Jones Slaves to the Rhythm all that sort of stuff yeah. that, I was really into that side of it and why did his record sound so much different to everyone else I used to feel it was important for a producer to put a stamp on things. Yeah. But then you kind of realize that it's it's kind of the artist's record, not your record. Yeah. And I think I think once you as you get older and you make more records, you kind of um 
you, you just realize that you, you you're just you should be subservient to the artist and although you can you know you can bring certain templates and, and colors to the record you've kind of got to make sure that it fits in with you know with what they want to do i spend a lot of time communicating with people i work with these days and a lot of that is like send me a playlist of things you like and tell me why you like those songs and let's develop a vocabulary of what this record should be and and how we're going to do it and how we're going to approach it you know so i think it's um i'd like to think the records i make now are more transparent a lot of you just you just you just develop stuff as you go along you know yeah. i was having a sort out at home recently and i've got a crate of dats from the 90s and early 2000s and there's thousands and thousands of songs on there i'm like that was 10 years of my life you know and it's like and bar you know a few 60 for dolls things you know some furries there's there i mean there's some really there's some great little things in there like, and a lot of them started to appear like the, on the the radiator album there's lots of the on the special oh, edition the special there's edition, lots yeah of the stuff that me and Griff did together. Yeah. He just came in with, an, with a nylon acoustic guitar and we just knocked out like pretty much the demos for the whole album over a couple of days and yeah. like Dad would pop in occasionally and play on something or Gidda would pop in. Yeah, so the, so a lot of those little rarities, I'm really glad I kept those because it's, um you know, they do start to appear. I, you know, to get back to your question, I, you know, I think it's, you're always going to have certain things you bring to a record to make, you know, but you, you, you kind of move on and to get to, you know, Lifeblood is a really interesting example because the band and started that record with Tony Visconti based on all the work that Visconti did with Bowie, Berlin period, you know, Lodger, those sort of records. But Tony'd moved on. He'd moved on to, you know, he that that for him, that was 20, 30 years previously. So he was he just, he was in a different place production wise. But I kind of I was a huge, huge Bowie fan. So I I, I kind of knew what the band were trying to do. So I was just ripping off old Tony Visconti ideas and applying them to like to, to, to Manic's records. So I think I by imitating a Visconti production style from the 70s I managed to secure myself the gig because I'd kind of seen where the ba- where the band wanted to go and it was it was a really weird way to get a record and and I was working in New Zealand at the time on, on an album and and James phoned me up and said do you want to come to New York next week come and come and meet Tony and 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 so I, went, I thought I've got to spend time with Visconti because he's one of my heroes like so I flew to New York from New Zealand and and spent some time um, with, with Tony which was amazing got him to tell me all about the records that he'd made and I just picked his brains for two days essentially but while I was there the band were like you know we'd really we'd really like a lot of the work you've done on the on the demos you know would you want to come and do the rest of the record with us I'm like well, of course you know so Manic Street Preachers record of course <laughs> I want to do that you know so it wasn't even my production style it was very much I was trying to imitate what yeah. what, 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 what Visconti had done on those records really um, I read that so obviously the Manics wanted had a really clear vision and sound of what they wanted in terms of like a synthy sort of more mellow sort of sound um, but I read that in an interview that um, because they had sort of put a, a ban on power chords and you know didn't want so many guitar solos that sort of thing you, you would sort of devise this way of having the guitar sounding like keyboards which you've developed into your career now yeah? you'd be surprised how many of the guitars the keyboards on that record of guitars it was it's something i do a lot now it, it's got to an extreme where i use a lot of chains of guitar pedals to create sounds and sonics and and although it was a fairly basic setup back then you know a lot of that i was trying to mold a lot of james's guitar parts into keyboard sounds you know and a lot of the textural things you know there are keyboards on the record but a lot of them a lot of it is you know probably 50 percent thing you think of keyboards are actually guitars yeah there were a lot of rules on that album you know and it was like you know it, we we're trying to work with nick's elegiac pop kind of thing and um it was an it was a really interesting approach and it could you know it could have gone either way it's like you know it, it could have just been it's a strange record because i mean I, i'm obviously really proud of it 
but you know it wasn't success commercially but it's become a, a quite a fan favorite record yeah, absolutely yeah. I, every year there's at the anniversary i get loads of messages on twitter or whatever you know this record changed my life i you know this is a record i grew up with i'm like you kind of buy into the sort of like the narrative about it that it's kind of like you know it's it's always bottom of the poles of, of manic's albums and then you realize it like a lot of people really really love that record you know? yeah i've always loved it and um i've never really understood the beef with it really um but i i, I do think some think like for a, a band who always had their pr sort of spot on I, I did think there was a little bit of a misstep around that period in terms of nikki saying it was the holy bible for 35 year olds which it right. just wasn't and also it coincided i think only about a month later with the 10th anniversary of holy bible yeah, which kind yeah. of overshadowed it all i suppose what was interesting is the review apart from the q review all the reviews were really really good for that record mm. q gave it two stars yeah, i think uh, yeah i remember that, because yeah. I, I had a really miserable run because I, I, was, I was actually doing the mel c record at the time when that album came out i was in i was in metropolis in london doing melanie's record and i remember reading the, the q review and it's like, oh man it can't get any worse than that. and then Melanie's right came out and she got one star. Oh. So so I had a really bad run with Q magazine. And I always remember it, it also the review of, of Melanie's record was the worst review I ever had in Q. And it said, even the silence between the songs sounds overproduced. Oh, that is harsh. <laughs> it kind of, it's harsh, but I kind of, I always quote it now. It's like, you've got to take the good reviews of the bad reviews. Yeah. You Do know? you remember the reviewer's name or? No, uh, <laughs> no, I think I had the murdered. <laughs> but we did have a lot of really good reviews for yeah. like, and I remember when it came out, it's like this is great yeah. this could really do, do well and then then you, you look at this the sale you know I, I just think love of richard nixon was a really challenging single for a lot mm. of people but I, you know i put it on i put it on recently and it was like my god it's a really astounding sounding record yeah i'm not taking the credit for that because I, I think tom elmhurst really turned that song around you know the, the 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 version that we gave to tom was 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 a lot more basic and a lot of the really exciting things on that record i think we'd been on that we'd been on that record for about a year and a half and it needed someone to come in and really which at the time i was thinking why would you want someone else to do it? why can't i mix the record and then now i totally see why because tom bought a whole because he's gone on to produce produce some amazing and make some amazing records you know a lot of the bowie stuff beck and all kind you know ama amazing you know what he's now one of the world's top mix guys but the band spotted him really early i think he's just in the gold frap record that we all really liked and i think we felt there was a kind of like a connection between what gold frap were doing and what the band were trying to do on lifeblood and actually now i've i never mix my records i make i, I I've, I've totally adopted the manic's philosophy of always having someone else mix the record yeah i just love that how that fresh set of ears and and, and that approach but when you're young you get your ego gets a bit bruised and you think <laughs> why would you want to do that and and the, i totally get it now and it's um i'm proud of it you know yeah. and i'm proud of the fact that people really connect with it you know even if it even if it's a bit of an anomaly in the mm. band's sort of sort of lexicon really and I, I think as well it's got one of the sort of brilliant sort of uh, one of their best opening tracks 1985 which has got a bit of a story yourself is it 1985 it's with the band yeah it, it's it's um yeah it was <laughs> There were some dark moments <laughs> on that record, and it was like we'd done a version of it in, in at what became Faster Studios, which was then at the time was Stir Studios in in, in Cardiff, in in um, just round by the station. We went over to Grouse Lodge in Ireland to record through the bulk of the record. We did a new version on there, and I just couldn't get it sounding right. I couldn't get the drums sounding right, and. And there was just like masses of ridicule going on. And I was like, it was a really dark place. And one of my darkest nights in the music industry was at, on that session where 
I, and Rob Stringer came over to listen to to some rough mixes and and I and I started I, I thought I want to you know I want to get some movement going I'm gonna put I'm gonna put loads of percussion and on these on these tracks put the first track on and Rob was like what's that what's that what's all that stuff hanging off one ear what's all that it's like it's some tambourines or something he said, yeah, it doesn't need it. Well, what's all that? And it's like, and uh, and then I thought, oh, God, every song has got this, that uh, that same sort of thing <laughs> yeah. on. And, it, that, and so song after song, it was like, and I, and I, I remember kind of sinking into the mixing desk. I just wanted it to swallow me up and like, you know, they're good learning experiences, mm. you know, and, uh, and um, you know, and, and it made us change the record back. That was one of the songs that was just like, I just couldn't get it right. But luckily, Tom, when Tom came in, he really kind of managed to pull, yeah, pull the main thing out of it. Um, I think they're one of James's best. I think, and I've actually seen it in Bands interviews. Uh, I live to fall asleep. Yeah, one of James's best vocals. The yeah, vocal yeah. on it is absolutely incredible. It's just like really amazing. When I read that review, I put it on. Uh, yeah, it is really, really mm. good. And there, there are there are some really great moments on there. Oh yeah, Cardiff Afterlife and yeah. um, Solitude Sometimes Is and yeah, both of which yeah. I didn't do. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all that shit you didn't do that was amazing. Uh, <laughs> oh no, you did song for departure. I did. That's song a brilliant. For Archer, yeah, great base yeah, on that. Yeah, yeah, thanks for putting that one in the bag. <laughs> and Empty Souls is one of your favourite moments. Empty Souls, yeah, I, I really love that. And I love the video. In fact, I went to stay at that hotel based purely on the video. <laughs> I thought, that swimming pool and Nixon, that looks really good. <laughs> so I took my wife over and we went and stayed in the in, in the park. In 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 Potsdam Platz in the in the, in, the, in the Hyatt and it was uh, it was a bit surreal, but it was uh, it was great. You know, I remember sort of swimming in the pool in the morning. I think, yeah, you know that. <laughs> So it was. The, it, I, I felt I was part. Of, you know, <laughs> felt kind of at one with the swimming pool. You know, I listened to an interview. I think it was a, a video interview on YouTube that you did, and uh, you talked about obviously how hard it was at the time. Lifeblood and, and Melanie C's album, and you had a little bit of a break afterwards. Went to New Zealand. And you said you were going to jump off some bridges in, in New Zealand. I had a midlife crisis. <laughs> I had a full crisis. Oh wow! Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. I think a lot of producers get. You, you can really burn out. But those were two really, really intense records to make yeah. and really high pressure records to make. You know, and bearing in mind, you know, I, I, I was coming out of kind of like, you know, booby trap singles and, you know, sort of, and I, and I was still, I didn't start production properly until my late 30s. I wasn't one of these young sort of, um, you sort of, you know, hot shot young producers. You know, I'd kind of worked my way through as a musician and, um, you know, produ- I got to production quite late and, you know, to, to go from just, you know, bands were coming into, into, into big noise and, you know, we've got, we've got, you know, we, we can, we've got to do three songs in a day, you know, and I, and I do lots of radio sessions for the session in Wales, you know, sort of yeah. um, do a lot, a lot of, you know, a lot of bands there, you know, you're big studios, you, there's a lot of expectation. I mean, the third day of Melanie's record, I was in Angel in Islington with a 19-piece orchestra standing there thinking, this is just insane, you know, we're just burning through vast amounts of money, yeah. you know, I, I could have probably made like 20 booby trap albums for what today is costing, <laughs> you know, and uh, and it, it really, and it's, 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 it's a lot of pressure, and and now I, I wouldn't, it would, it would be like water off a duck's back. I could just, I wouldn't even think about it. Yeah. yeah. But then it was just like, it was just a massive learning experience, you know? And uh, yeah, so I went and jumped off some bridges and I just didn't go into the studio for six months. I, I couldn't face going back into a studio. Not because, you know, I mean, Melanie was, is, it was wonderful to me. She's a wonderful human being, really nice. And, uh, and you know, and I, and I love the Manics. They're just, they're, 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 they're just, you know, they're hugely important people in my life, you know? But those records, but they, they were tough. So, you know, and it was good. You learn a lot when things are tough, you know, and it's, um, I much prefer the way the music industry is now. You know, it's tighter budgets, people making great records on not a lot of money. You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's brought the creativity back. 
and taking the emphasis away from you know and you know, there are different metrics now you know yes spotify um streams you know are important but it's kind of there's not i don't feel there's that massive pressure of having got to you've got to sell i mean, what did, what did, i remember having a dinner with martin hall after know your enemy came out and i remember him i think he was disappointed that it only sold four hundred thousand copies in the first week you know yeah. that it, it, it's just now that just seems absurd yeah. yeah but you know when you know this is my truth had done a million copies in wales alone how many people are in wales that's like a, a quarter of the population <laughs> yeah. own a copy of that record so you know you you set you set the bar so high it's like where do you go you know and then all you can do is come crashing down and you live in New Zealand now, and we were talking yeah. before we recorded. I spent a bit of time there in the early two thousands, and um, the person I was living with in uh, in in Auckland um, trying to get me onto what was going on in, in New Zealand. And two of the CDs I had were, were Op Shop and the Feelers, and right, you I worked, took both those records. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what what else is going on in New Zealand? What's the scene like over there? What, what can you it's tell us really about? Really great. I mean, it's like um, it, it's it's such a healthy music industry there at the <clears> moment. It's um, it really changed with like the whole. I mean. I think I think Ella a Lord changed everything. The way it, it, you have a country, you can re- realize that they can breed really amazing artists, you know. And um, I was watching the Taylor Swift documentary, yeah. Miss Americana, on the way over. And Joel Little is um is is in a in is a songwriter from and producer from New Zealand who who I produced Joel's first single when he was like eighteen years Not old, really. and he was a, the lead singer in a punk pop band called yeah. Good Night Nurse. And, and 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 I'm like, oh my God, there's Joel just hanging out with Taylor Swift, writing songs, for, and it's like, you know, and 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 it's 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 kind of like the Welsh music industry was, what well, it still is now. That the music industry before, you know, before the mid '90s, as as David Owens was was telling yeah. was in your, saying in your podcast, it was a dark place. You couldn't get A and R to come here. There was no recognition of Welsh music. Everything changed in the in the mid '90s where. You could wander into the city arms and you could look around and you see you could see ten people all in signed bands and major yeah. major artists, you know, on a, on a, on a on a national level as and in an international level, you know, it's like it was it was an amazing feeling. It's like there was a feeling that anything anything could happen, you know, anybody could do it. If now we've got some artists who, who have broken through. Anything can happen here, and New Zealand feels like that now. It's like there's 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 so much going on. The industry is really supportive, and there's lots of re- you know it's a small, compact industry full of really good people, and and lots of great young producers, great young artists. It'd be nice. It'd be, I'd like to see more bands. There's some really cool bands there, but there's there's a lot of young pop songwriters and artists, and um, you know there's some really good good rock bands there, and it's like in fact there's a, there's a there, there's a band called Echo Park there who okay. who are actually named after the feeder song. Yeah, yeah. And I, I used to be in a band with Grant. Okay. And uh, a band called Temper Temper. So so I so I, I said, well, why don't we get Grant to come and sing on a song? They were like, what? Is that possible? <laughs> you know, I said, well, yeah, I, I, I'll give him a call. So I call up, do you want to come and sing on this song? So see, so the, the the first single off the album is a duet with the band and Grant from Feeder. Oh, cool. And it was like, the, uh, and, and we got Chris Sheldon who um, who mixed uh, all the Foo Fighters stuff and um, Color in the Shape of the Foo Fighters to mix the record. And so so that's coming out this year. But that was kind of quite cool. I felt like a really good Welsh New Zealand connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so it's, um, and I've been doing lots of things of bringing young songwriters, uh, international songwriters to work with young artists here and, and, and producers, like I said, with Andrew Sheps bringing those guys over. So and David Wrench and Ramesh as well bring them. Ramesh over. Ramesh came yeah, over, yeah. and in fact, we had a, we had a, we had we had a Welsh year. So basically, yeah. it was like uh, Ramesh. We I, I bring two different producers who do a week each. 
and there's a crossover in the middle and it was just it was really nice being out in a restaurant in Auckland with with, with Dave Wrench and Ramesh it was like the Welsh have arrived <laughs> yeah. it was great and you know it's like oh yeah it was and they're both such brilliant producers yeah. you know it was like it was just great to have them there you know given all that knowledge and and, and there's a there's a, a really great mix engineer and, and and producer called Simon Gooding who 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 works out of New Zealand and he um he just mix a load of stuff on the pink album and he was like david wrench when david wrench came over it changed this he said it changed my whole way of thinking how to mix records and, and, then, and then within six months he's mixing the pink album yeah. you know it's like that feels really good when that sort of stuff happens and um i remember watching i was watching dave working on a track and it was like it's, it's just the guy's just a genius yeah. i love the audiobook stuff yeah. it's yeah. just so fantastic you feel proud when your countrymen kind of make a difference yeah and and, and see and see ramesh over at the uh, grammys yes you know, of with, course you know, yeah and bring the horizon and it's like yeah i love those guys you know it's, it's, it's a quite there was a time when there weren't many well producers and now there's some really you know it was me and owen morris <laughs> and i don't know i mean i remember ramesh contacted me i was working on a session in latvia of all places and and i got a message on msn messenger hello my name's ramesh um i've just started producing you know will you listen to some tra tracks and he sent me some tracks i think some kids in glass house yeah. and stuff or something it was astounding and he he'd done it in his parents house yeah self-taught like yeah and it was like this guy's amazing you yeah. know and now to see him you know doing bring me the horizon and all this stuff it's like yeah i kind of really I'm, I'm just really proud of those guys because it's you know it's like it's a hard job being a producer and it's uh you know, but it's really rewarding when it goes right you know and um another legendary welsh act that you're involved with uh nicky wire's secret society and they're four legendary gigs four legendary <laughs> gigs i'd like to think those gigs are legendary because you know it's like the hail and Wife festival one was it was really something to behold because it was like we had i think we had two rehearsals for it essentially the whole album was weird because nick booked some time in the studio so look i want to come in I want to do 10 till 5. I, I want to come in and, and, and do something. So I was sitting there with Lars Williams, who now runs the Manic studio over, over in Newport. And um, and uh, he, it was like, what are we going to... I was sitting there with Lars before Nick came. was like, what are we going to do today? Is he going to read poetry? Is he going to do... Is it going to be like Pat's album or something? Is You know, what's going to happen? And um, so Nick turns up and he has all these really cool songs. You know, just he picks a guitar up starts playing and it was like oh well, that's really cool so I, you know I, so i was like i guess i'm playing drums then so i was like you know it's so got the drum kit set up so nick gave us a couple of ground rules like there was to be no bass guitar on the album so like, right bass player solo album with no bass guitar on it so i spent a lot of that record just trying to figure out ways to get low end like yeah. tuning kick drums and floor toms and you know sneaking a bit of baritone guitar and so essentially the album is myself and nick I even did backing vocals on it, which is like how I convinced myself <laughs> to do backing vocals. You know, Nick would be the first to admit he wasn't back then the greatest singer. And it was like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if we did some gigs? Ha, ha, ha. Like, it's never going to happen, happen. Like, and, uh, you know, and, and uh, I think Laws, yeah, James guested on one track and Laws played a bit of guitar and a few things. But it, it was pretty much just me and Nick doing most of this record. And then we, I think we did a radio session for, for Beth Ann's show. And uh, she's actually quite good. <laughs> Maybe we should do some gigs. <laughs> so, so, so Nick got invited to the Hay Festival, and it was like, let's do the Hay Festival. Hay and Wise, my hometown. Yeah. So, bearing in mind, my mother is going to be in the audience, <laughs> all right. So, we had two, these two rehearsals, and we kind of, and and I remember some of the, some of the, because of course all the all the all the Wire fans, all the Wire girls turn up, you know, all the girls from Finland and everything, yeah. they all turn up, and they're all waiting thing. And 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 I remember hearing them sort of talk later about they would listen to the sound check and like. They were like, "Oh my god, this is terrible! Like, this is really bad!" Like this, you know. But but the gig started, and Nick got really, really drunk. 
but it was amazing. He was like the funniest stand-up comic you've ever heard, <laughs> just ripping into everybody. You were talking about it on, on, on one of your other podcasts, and it was like, but he was on another level. Yeah. Like yeah. I mean, like so he's just like laying into Jamie Oliver, just all these really <laughs> random the people, bottle, swinging, and of course yeah. he's swearing and like like effing and seeing, and I'm, I can see my mother <laughs> in the audience. Oh no, it's just there. It's, Terrible. I'm just, I'm just staring down at the drums, you know. But it was like, it became this kind of legend. legendary. Yeah. It was almost like the Sex Pistols at the 100 Club. Yeah. Were you there at Nicky Wire at the... Uh, at the or the, the Free Trade Hall in Manchester. Yeah. Where yeah, it was just this craziest thing. And so and then we did, what was the second? Oh, we did the Purple, Purple Turtle, is it in Camden? Yeah. yeah. Camden, which I actually have a video of. <laughs> That no one's seen. Um, it, like, it was filmed because at the time I was working on a documentary about what the work I was doing. Yeah. So, but which never got completed. But that gig was filmed, so I've got it. And Nick said I can put it out. So at some point I will. I will. <laughs> the, maybe the fifteenth anniversary yeah. of the yeah. gig or something. But it was actually pretty good. So you know, it was, it, and uh, we brought another guitarist, and Andy Taylor, and uh, myself, Lars, and Andy, and, and Nick. So we sort of, um, and then we did um, Latitude Festival. And thought, we better do some rehearsals for this. So we did quite a lot of rehearsals for it. And it was like, and then the, the, we did the gig and it wasn't the best gig. And uh, and the review said, it sounded like the band had never even met, <laughs> let alone rehearsed. So fuck it. Well, we won't rehearse then. You know, obviously <laughs> rehearsal is not our thing. Right? Then we did the Gwilmax Festival in West Wales. And it was amazing. That the, it was, I remember playing that gig thinking, we're just on fire. We are so good tonight. It was like, you know, just everything found a place yeah. and we just sounded amazing. And that was the last gig we did. It was like, yeah, they have become kind of like weird legendary gigs, you know. And I think those years were really important for James and Nicky in terms of re- mm. reinvigorating themselves after lifeblood and getting into sort of the amazing success of send away the tigers it was interesting because um what, what was the first single of send away the tigers your love alone's not yeah, love yeah. Alone. and so the verses of that song are a rejected song from james's solo record and the middle eight is a rejected song from nick's solo album so there are kind of pieces that we we did a lot of stuff for james's record because I, like i only produced one song on james's album but I played drums on about eight songs on that record, and it was brilliant. It's like if I had to pick the best, my best drumming ever on a record, it would be on, on James's record. I'm just really proud of that. And it, we would often just start with me and him in a room. We'd play a few Zeppelin riffs, and then you kind of right, I've got this idea, and we play stay stuff. And it was we had some. I really enjoyed those sessions. And um, but we but when we started on James's record, it was it was it was a slightly rockier route, and I, he rejected a lot of those songs. But the, some of those ideas ended up on Send Away the Tigers. And um, so I think yeah, it was definitely you know just to get away and realize how important the Manics were to them. Yeah. Um, and to do gigs where it's like you know you're playing like bot lower low yeah. low down on festival bills and you know just doing these weird kind of like hey and why fest literary festival gigs and things I think it made me realize how important the band were and um, so they certainly came back kind of reinvigorated I mean the last work I did with the band would have been the stuff on Send Away the Tigers and then I did we did a massive B side session um, actually it was after after the I remember driving back from the Gwilmax Festival with Nick and then going and doing a lot of tracks with Nick was that we we really come in with the studio 
studio and do some stuff with us. So, so that being the last work I did with the band. So, yeah, I think it was a really important time for the band. And, and I remember going to see. Um, I went to the the O2 gig where they played all the singles, yep. and that was yeah, it was that was a great night. It was really really good, and to hear some songs from Lifeblood played, yeah. <laughs> it was like it was like great, yeah, it sounds pretty good, yeah. Nixon sounds pretty pretty good, and Empty Soul sounds good. So yeah, I, I I yeah, I'm obviously immensely proud of you know it's like such an important thing for me but get to spend time with you know such an iconic set of musicians you know so greg thank you ever so much um as you know it's about this time in 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 the podcast that we ask our guests to uh, choose their album favorite one by a welsh artist and we induct into the welsh music hall of fame no one else is allowed to choose it who have you gone for today i've gone for uh rings around the world by the super furry animals nice why have you chosen that one in particular it's just an outstanding record because i because i worked on the mung album yeah which was the album before then after because they they'd left creation and they did mung on placid casual i think which was their label and, I, and that was and that was an amazing experience because i'm a massive super furry animals fan and it was like you know and, and just to spend time in the studio with them and and, and work on things was, was brilliant but i remember going to a, the gig before they signed with it was, it was on sony wasn't it rings yeah, on the epic. Yeah. With epic yeah i remember going to that gig and that was a bizarre night because I, I remember being there with with james rob stringer and uh um and rob from from massive attack watching this gig from a box and it was like and they were really amazing that night and it's like and, and i think and rob could see how we how the how much the audience at, 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 the, at the motor point or the yeah. cia or whatever it was then so that was kind of their start of their kind of their, their epic the deal with epic and i think they had this they had the budget then to really indulge in what they, they there were no limits to what they could do the production is outstanding on that record. There's so many brilliant things, you know. But the thing I, I noticed about the time I spent with them, I love that whole collective thing where nobody had... Yes, there was a bass player and a drummer, and a, and a, but they kind of crossed roles a lot. And you just feel on that album that it's, it's everybody working to like 100% of their kind of creative abilities. And it's just, and, and there are so many production ideas I've stolen from that album. <laughs> and even now I, st- I, I think, all oh, right, I, mean, I don't know where I got that from. And I listened to the record yesterday bef- when I was uh, driving into Wales, before I better refresh my yeah. memory. And it was like, it still sounds incredible. And uh, and weirdly, it's like, uh, like I know they did a lot of it at Mono Valley Studios, yeah. in, which I used to use a lot, but also they did a lot of, a lot of Bearsville Studios in, York, yeah, yeah. in, in New York. And the, the the desk that was at Bearsville is now at Neil Finn's studio, Roundhead Studios, where I work all the time in, in, in Auckland. Uh-huh. So it's like, you know, it's 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 weirdly come around this full yeah. circle. So, so I kind of use that desk a lot. And um, and, I, and I often think, you know, as part of the fact that the Who, Who used to own it and then Jeff Bucky did Grace on it and, and the Super Furries did Rings Out of the World on wow. it. But it's just brilliant songwriting. You know, Griff is such a, a an amazing songwriter. And, um, and, uh, and, Kiddo and Dav are just the best rhythm section ever. They just did. I just love the way they interact. And there are moments on that record where the band just go off, on, and it's like it's astounding. It's like no, it's like no other record ever made for me. And it's um, it's that combination of like, and it's like we'll do you know we'll do a country track and then we'll do like a metal thing. And yeah. we'll do, there were no boundaries, and uh, and the, but they make it all sound so seamless, and it doesn't feel out of place. You know, if for me it's the it's the ultimate comp. A culmination of kind of like that Welsh 
psychedelic craziness but done in this kind of like pristine polished yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of way and like you know I, if i have to pick my top three songs at any any list run christian run always makes my top three list of, of my favorite Very songs nice. ever because it's just like you know it's brilliant and it's, it's it's a country song with weird keen's weird synth going on and harmonica and it's like and then, the, and then at the end the band just kind of take off and yeah. it's like who thinks of that like, <laughs> who thinks uh, what sort of brains can come up with that sort of that sort of thing you know well they've they've had like lots of um there's lots of um examples of their sort of unique creativity that you mentioned earlier on and um you know mung full album yeah. in uh, in welsh language um taking a tang with a big techno yeah. sort of speakers <laughs> on and taking it to the Eisteddfod. Yeah. And obviously Rings Around the World um, and subsequently Phantom Power was released simultaneously on, on DVD yeah. and yeah. CD yeah. with like full music videos for, for each song unheard of at the time. Yeah. And and then sort of the, the, the sound production as well. And then there's like quadraphonic sound, I think. And then in the gigs, like the one you mentioned in, in, in the CIA, well, they think, had like... I think, the, I think the Rings Around the World gig, was that, was, I think that was the quadraphonic yeah, yeah, gig. Yeah, it was, yeah. Because... I've seen probably seen them more than any other band yeah. I've ever, you know. And um, and I remember going to the quadraphonic gig, and I and I and I I went with Lucy Owen bizarrely, and and I was I was chatting to her about Super Free Animals. She goes, I, "I've never heard anything." I said, "You've got to come to this gig." <laughs> so I kind of dragged poor Lucy down to this like gig. Then I think they were wrestlers, like you know, vast wrestlers and quad sound and things are flying around the thing, and it was like, and she was like, oh, she really enjoyed it. I remember her really enjoying it, but all obviously been totally bemused yeah because you know we, we all knew all the songs and it was like you know and i was just like you know i think she's quite bemused by this whole thing you know it's like and, and quite an unlikely person to be at the gig yeah. but it was um there were so many weird nights at super free animals gigs <laughs> it does strike me as very much a album of its time in terms of like gorilla and um rings on the world are both um, sort of obsessed with advances in technology and you know there's a lot of references to mobile phones and stuff like that yeah, and Gorilla yeah. on rings it's like this communication overload and yeah as you say it is just using the studio's um, sort of modern techniques that were coming through in the millennium and uh, Cause I, cause yeah because I, I, I think it, I think it was the first time they'd used Pro Tools on a record yeah it, it had been, and we'd been really early versions of Pro Tools and I, you know there was a reason we used to call it Slow Tools because <laughs> it was like it was really kind of laborious to, you'd literally sort of get, get it to acid to do a task and then go and have dinner and come back and it would still be doing things you know it was like so it was um they, they, re- they were really think they were really pushing the technology obviously presidential the song presidential suites on there i recorded a version of that for the john cale film because oh, beautiful, uh, beautiful mistake, mistake. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I, so i so i did a, i did i recorded there was two units there was the rolling stones mobile and there was a unit at the point and i was running the unit at the point um where we'd kind of do some of the filming and all, a lot of the recording and then I, then I did all the mixing and the quadraphonic and dolby mixing for for that film so so i'd done i'd worked on a version of that song um you can find the welsh version of of uh, beautiful mistake yeah can't go ahead greek on there it was never the the, the the actual film was the, the english version was never released um it would be really interesting now 20 years later to see that film because it was it was a real snapshot of welsh music at that time yeah. there's yeah. patrick's in it Big Leaves and um, Dorero. Big Leaves, Dorero. Yeah. do a really good version of Buffalo Ballet with John Cale. Really great version. Because myself and Kerry were brought in as kind of like, I think there was a little bit of conflict between for the film crew and the musicians. You know, there's, it was, it was always that little bit of lack of trust between that whole commercialization of Cool Camry yeah. kind of thing. And, and musicians kind of very much rejected that tag. 
so um we knew everybody you know and so we kind of like we we, we helped them find artists and things for the film you mentioned the uh, presidential suite that's my favorite song on the album right you know because you've got like rings around the world and all of the singles and stuff like that but then that one comes in and it's got like the refrain of um Northern Lights from the yeah. from the previous album. Their mel- melodies are amazing. Song. Yeah, you know, I, the, I really focused on the arrangement yesterday, and it was like it was just it's so it's so astoundingly put together. You know that that's the that's the beauty of that band. You can go from this really weird angular stuff into these beautiful instrumentals. Into you know, it's almost like a it's almost like a classic Motown ballad. Yeah. You know, and they make it all so seamless. You know, every time I got a chance to work with Griff, I was always astounded by what an, an amazing natural talent he was. I actually went to see his one man show in the Edinburgh Festival a couple of years ago, yeah. or a year and a half ago. I think it freaked him out a bit. I was sitting in the front row <laughs> right in front of because it was like you know, I I, I, I took, took him a while. To to realize i was actually sitting there but um but it was really it was a brilliant show and he's um you know the the how he can just keep coming up with this amazing stuff i just uh and another um brilliant song on the album um in terms of it starts off kind of quite a sweet song but then by the end it's like a sort of death metal wig out is um receptacle for this uh, yeah <laughs> put my teeth in Re- it's really hard to receptacle say receptacle for yeah. the yeah, receptacle for the respectable. One well, with, well, with Paul McCartney chewing. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, one of the <laughs> greatest cameos uh, ever. Yeah. yeah, celery in that. Yeah, celery. And um, yeah, it's like it seems like two different songs. I remember the first time I heard it, thinking, "My God, is this the same song?" Yeah. yeah, I always loved it when they would go off on these electronic wig outs yeah. on the end of songs as well. Like um, "Mountain People" is the classic yeah. one. It was they'd end the shows with it, and it would just go and cue the masked wrestlers and and everything. And it was like, and I've done that on a few records where I'm going to do this crazy super furries end and where it goes off into some electronic wig out at the end you know and it's like a, and it's um yeah they, they just do it so well you know and i think that's the thing it's like it's one of those things you expect in a live performance particularly that sort of like looped sample thing that they yeah. do of the vocal and stuff like that but it works so well on on an on an album track which yeah. not many other bands would have the balls to do that there were there were no weaknesses in that band no. every person in that band was a was really really clever i remember i remember kian coming to do a track on patrick's album and he just turned up with a sampler yeah and he said just give me the poem and he just cut the poem up and just built this incredible thing it was like it was inc- amazing to watch you know and, and I th- griff did um some sort of like bossa nova salsa kind of thing <laughs> and it was like how do your brains work yeah it's really incredible and uh you know they just I had nothing but respect for those guys, and it's like you know, just just the the the, the brief times I worked with them was always a pleasure, and uh, yeah, the last time that I I had, a, I had to do a big tape edit session was on Mung, you know, just pre Pro Tools days when you know it's like let's change the arrangement. It's like all right, you know, you have to get the razor blade out and literally cut the tape up, and it was um yeah, it was um amazing. And you're saying about the sort of endless creativity of the band, not just Griff, you know, Kian Bunf and Gitto, but um Kian's piece again, a touch sensitive. What a, like it's it's just perfect yeah, in the middle yeah. of the album as well. Kian's a genius. They, they, they're all geniuses, yeah. you know, and it's like yeah. Kian's a real, you know, like I, I put him up there with like, you know, your craft works and you're like, you know, sort of like your real synth pioneers. Like so many bands started doing that crazy synth shit after Kian's doing yeah. it, you know, because they're very much a musician's band. Like musicians love the Super Furry Animals, you know, and it's like you can hear it that coming through, you know. And tell what, what's also been really interesting in general with Welsh music is that kind of 
I was listening to the um, who was the band that won the Mercury Prize? The Adwith. Adwith. Listen to that, that record, and and it was like you can hear the DNA of Welsh music from like the nineties, like you know Gorkies, yeah. Furries, um, you know, and all the Welsh language bands coming through, you know, and that DNA is still in there. And I was really interested when I heard the the the, the latest Aldous Harding record because obviously Aldous is a New Zealand artist and you know very much loved by New Zealanders. But I, I put the record on. I'm like, in knowing that that that, that Hugh Hawkeye yeah. is is now her partner, and and they and recorded at Rockfield. And there's a lot of Welsh musicians on that record, yeah. and you can hear these little hints of like Gorkies and the Furries, and just like that DNA kind of like it's subtle, but it's in, it is definitely in there, and it's really pleasing to hear. Like, you know, I've been going through a lot of the the um, Welsh Music Prize artists and trying to rediscover, which is why your podcast has been really great because it's like. Because you kind of live in a museum and it's a long way away, you know, and, and it's really easy to get, you know, to you get involved in a new music scene and you feel a bit alienated from the one that you, you grew up in. So it's been nice to go back, but then we're also pleased to hear that DNA coming through with other artists and, and um, yeah, so that's been, you know, that's been kind of fascinating. Really. So, so you must be the one person on the stats who's <laughs> listening in New Zealand then. Is that you? That'll be me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's... Um, yeah, you want to, I I have six music on as our as our um in our kitchen. We yeah. we did it when we lived in the Cotswolds, and it's like wait, I'm not moving to New Zealand and listening to <laughs> shitty New Zealand commercial radio. So I um I we have I six music on, but obviously we're kind of thirteen hours ahead, you know, eleven to thirteen hours ahead, depending on the time of year. So obviously, what we get are like kind of like rock goes to college from 1970. We you know we got the we got the cars, you know, and it's like well, there's some late night reggae show or some you know, but you do get some quite cool things, and then in the mornings you kind of get you. Get a lot of kind of um, you know this, they play this lot of a really good New Zealand artists. So they play you know, Nadia Reed and uh, and you know, Aldous, Aldous Hardin and Tiny Ruins and you know a lot of that the sort of folkier side of, of New Zealand music. But it's it's kind of and then it's nice to wander down. You can hear Hugh Stevens on the radio, you know, which is kind of surreal because I'm in a, in, a, in my house in New Zealand and you kind of listen to and you just feel that little bit of like a little bit of hereith, you know, that little yep, yep. that kind of longing for your homeland kind of thing. And, and this morning was just being up on the Black Mountains and listening to you guys talking about the Manic Millennium. It was like, yeah, it's nice to be home. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, much as I love New Zealand and, I, and, I, and I'm very proud to be a citizen, it's like, it's always nice to get back to Wales. It's, uh, it's, it's always, it's, it, you know, it's a very special place for me and, uh, you know, to be back in Cardiff and, um, you know, and, and see what Welsh music has become. Yeah. How important it's become. It isn't that backwater anymore. No, it's, it's an important musical country that forms a lot of other people's, you know, sort of like you know, influences a lot of other artists and a lot of other people. Yeah, I think there's real parallels between now and the 90s, really, this real collective of yeah. Welsh acts that are really sort of good. You it's know? astounding, you know, and it's like, you know, that, that'll that be the parents of the people in bands now listening to those bands. Yeah. You know, it's like, I'm often now older than the parents of the artists that I work with. <laughs> you know, I, I've yet to someone to say, to say that, you, you know, I, I get quite a lot of you produce my father's band or my mother's band. I'm yet to have you produce my grandparents' <laughs> band, but it's gonna happen, <laughs> and it's coming on real quick. So, so it's not, you know, it's like I'm, I'm just like a really small part of like of of that thing, and you know, and I and I had quite a big career before the whole '90s thing happened, but just to be there and be a part of that, it was such an incredible time, and to see it bearing fruit like 20, 30 years later. You know, it's, it's, and, and, and people still talking about it. Yeah. You know, it was great to hear John Ross and chat in a way. John's such an amazing mine of knowledge of, you know, Welsh music and, uh, you know, and, and hearing Hugh and Bethan and it's like, and, and Pat, it was, um yeah, it's, it, it's, it's really kind of like pulling me back to sort of, and wanting me to listen to more Welsh music again, which is, um so it's been, 
been really good and, and, and what you guys are doing is really important oh, thanks so much. Oh, thank you so much Greg thank you ever so much thank for your you. time today oh, my pleasure and, and thank you both for all the, all oh, the thank you know you. for the work you're doing and um, you know I, I've, uh, I've already subscribed yeah. oh yes yeah and I will and I will you know and I will I will definitely be doing some posting about it and uh, not that I got that many followers but <laughs> you know, it's like uh, but it's yeah it's really it's been really great to sort of rediscover some Welsh music and uh, and Brilliant. you know feel part of my my sort of and I still support Wales at rugby that, <laughs> and that, you know Wales are coming to play the All yeah. Blacks on 4th of July in Eden Park so I've got my tickets and I'll be going and I'll be shouting at the ref and I will <laughs> wearing a daffodil hat I will, I'll be a daffodil hat <laughs> it's like you know I, it's nice to have a team that wins all the time most of the time you know it's my second team but if the Lions come or the Wales come I'm you know it's I'm Welsh all the way and it's like and I'm still waiting for the first win. I, you know, can you imagine living in New Zealand and Wales <laughs> haven't won since 1953? <laughs> oh, you know, it's like I'm waiting, I'm holding out for that one win where I can just I can go and gloat to everybody. <laughs> and it it will happen in my life. I'm determined. <laughs> We've qualified for a major championship, so that's yeah, one yeah, thing. Yeah. One thing done. But yeah, I'm just waiting for that win. And you know, maybe this year is the. I say it every year. Maybe this year is the year. But I'm going to be in Eden Park and I'll be you know full welsh for the day <laughs> the last time i just screamed abuse at wayne barnes for the rest of my wife jackie's annoyance you know? <laughs> but uh, I, hopefully she'll still uh, sort of deem to go with me this time you know for, yeah thank you so much for fitting us uh, in yeah there's such pleasure. a small window of time to, and you give it up to us and we really appreciate that safe travels back to new zealand thank you very much to close this week, uh, we've got a great band who tie in with this episode, Dorero, uh, who were back after nearly 20 years. Uh, Greg Haver worked with them back in the late 90s. Um, they've just released a brilliant album called Time Lapse through um, Kaigwin Records, which Greg contributes the sleeve notes to. It's um, getting a um, digital release next weekend. Uh, so in, in readiness for that, we're doing a Twitter listening session. So hope you can join us for that. This is called Rolling Past Vistas. Take it to town.